Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back, everyone, to Hidden History Happy Hour with Alex and Brian and to the start of the 107th Black History Month in the United States. Alex, when is Black History Month in the UK? It's in October, so we're going to have an opportunity to plug these episodes again when October comes back around. Excellent. And I would simply note that while you were mm, century plus behind us in Black History Month, and you know how this pains me to say, Alex, but the UK was decades ahead of the United States in something far more important not only abolishing slavery, but using force to try to stop it. And we will circle back to that. For U.S. Black History Month, we not only have two, count them, two great stories from Alex's book, Lessons from History, but our first and a very special guest with a deeply personal and moving story, the great Terry Franklin is here. And he will also add his commentary to our stories and tell you his compelling story of his journey and his family. So triple Black History Month bonus to our listeners. Also, I should note early in the broadcast, it is Ardent Spirits Day here on the Hidden History Happy Hour. As you you know, this is a place where we have a drink, have a laugh, and we hope you guys are joining us if you can do it safely. Why Ardent Spirits, Terry Franklin? Ah, Ardent Spirits. So um, in my story, uh, we're going to learn a little bit about the fact that sometimes you can challenge a will on the grounds that somebody... uh, lacks capacity or that they've been unduly influenced or that they've been plied with ardent spirits. In other words, they've been given alcohol in mm-hmm. order to induce them to do a will. So that's a little bit of the actual true story that, uh, that comes out of my story. I'll get to that. So a little teaser to keep you guys staying tuned. <laughs> I, uh, I looked up ardent spirits just in the, uh, the old Miriam Webster, and it basically means listeners imbibe whatever you choose. It's dealer's choice day. <laughs> I'm returning to rum, and I believe Alex is uh, quaffing some scotch. But you guys, I'm having some, no, I'm something to Winnie. Yep, some ah, twelve year Winnie. Excellent, excellent. So I had asked Alex to license me to tell this first story, even though it's from his book, Lessons from History, because my father, as it turns out, was an Episcopal minister, and as most people probably know, the American Episcopal Church is a stepchild of the Anglican Church, also known as the Church of England. And given that history, Alex, one of the many reasons I never blow shit on anyone else's religious beliefs is that my church only exists because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, there are there are crazier reasons for religions to exist, but that is an accurate summation of the church to which into which I was baptized. Yes, one, one rumor has it that at least one uh, air quotes religion was uh, created on a bet. But as someone who believes that they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of someone who died 2,200 years ago, I suppose nothing is outrageous to <laughs> base a religion on. Now, to 2,000, not 2,200. Yes, 2,000. Well, yeah. Okay. A long time ago, millennia ago. So a footnote on the relationship between the Church of England and the American Episcopal Church. In 2016, the Anglican Communion suspended the American Episcopal Church for membership for such unpardonable sins as having a gay bishop and recognizing gay marriage. But much like the NCAA Collegiate Sports Association, they suspended a big earning colleague for a period of time so we can learn our lesson. 
rather than expelling them. So hopefully we'll bring our funds back one day soon. Now to our first yeah. story. Ajayi was the grandson of a king of the Oyo people in what is now Nigeria. In 1821, Ajayi's entire village was sold to Portuguese slave traders. He never saw his father again. His fate sealed, or so he thought, he was forced to board a Portuguese slave ship bound for the New World. Portugal, by the way, was largely responsible, I recently learned, for introducing the transatlantic slave trade in the 15th century, a grisly business that ultimately took more than 15 million men, women, and children as victims. And Alex, how did, uh, how did your country get involved? Whilst the British uh, Empire um, had great activity in slavery, it never happened in the United Kingdom. And um, at least in the, the form as we know, uh, the modern country that is the United Kingdom. Um, in 1760s, uh, there was a, a famous case, uh, Shanley and Harvey, uh, and Lord Hardwick's comment that historians point to that as soon as a man sets foot on English ground, he is free. When someone sought to claim rights over a slave, they brought to um, to England. But in saying that, he was casting back to older case law. He was casting back to Cartwright's case in 1569, when a man tried to claim his right to beat beat somebody because he was his yeah. slave. And and from that, we famously got the the, the notion that Eng English air was too pure an air for slaves to breathe. So you can't possibly be a slave if you're in in England. Hmm. Now we may have got a lot else wrong. Uh, but and it's, it's a delightful bit of British arrogance in the way that it got framed. <laughs> but it's not a bad uh, spirit, is it? No. Listen, speaking Alex, of speaking of spirits, cheers. Cheers, everybody. No, Alex. Cheers. As as I said before, it's it's a an area where I wish we would have taken more from your country into our country. And obviously, we're still dealing with the stain <laughs> of our, uh, our our slavery days. And and may this help people think of things a little bit differently and maybe be a little more open to, to positive change. Oh, I hope so. And not that this will be a surprise to anyone, but it bears repeating as one writer has written about slavery, quote, malnutrition, untreated injuries, and severe physical abuse, close quote, were the order of the day for slaves. And we also know that a slave's voyage to the new world was a series of horrors with shockingly low survival rates and numerous slaves simply jumping overboard to escape in death their fate. However, this is a good news story because this was not the fate, as it turns out, that befell Ajayi, thanks to the men of the HMS Myrmidon, a part of the West Africa Squadron enforcing the British ban on slavery in the early 1800s. And Alex, any thoughts on the West Africa Squadron? Yeah, it's the kind of the thing that was very often pointed to when uh, people say was what was what was good about the British Empire. Well, you know, tell me something immediately that was positive about Britain's activity in in the world during uh, empire, and um, there are there are some actually, especially people from the subcontinent in India who might say you know, gave us a transport system or literacy or united us in a language as we sought to kick you out. Uh, but the first thing that many Brits will think about is the existence of the West Africa Squadron, which existed to patrol off the coast of Africa and stop not only, and the British slave trade died out very quickly uh, after our parliament had, had, uh, had said it should, but to stop third nations, to stop third parties um, yes. uh, carrying on their deadly trade in flesh. Yes. And Alex, notwithstanding our sort of kissing cousins rivalry, 
uh, all seriousness, I must take my hat off to your country. You were far ahead of my ancestors in combating slavery, and we should all acknowledge that on this Black History Month. And now I'm going to get back to slamming your country again in a minute. <laughs> in a minute. So the men of the HMS Myrmidon captured the Portuguese slave ship and took it to its took its now free people to Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone, Ajayi was put under the care of the Christian Missionary Society and took the name Samuel Crowther after one of its founders. After learning English and theology, Ajayi was ordained by the Bishop of London and opened a Christian mission in modern-day Nigeria. And a mere 20 years later, the Reverend Crowther was named the first Anglican Bishop of Africa. A stunning and improbable success story made possible by Ajayi's extreme courage and drive, the British Navy, the Church of England, and by Ajayi's attendance at what is universally regarded even today as the foremost British university in the world, Oxford. Oh, what a dump. That's outrageous. <laughs> Cambridge is plainly the most significant university in the world. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I couldn't help myself. Carry on. Well, I meant, of course, behind Terry's alma mater, Harvard, and my alma mater, University of Virginia. But in any event, with a new world, you know, the, the, the young upstarts who don't have the long <laughs> right. storied history, a little less, right. little less time in the in the dock so far. So that's the story. Amazing story. Right now, of course, there were theologies in Africa who had their own leadership. So we're not claiming this is the first leader of a religion. in Africa, <laughs> but, the, yeah. but the idea, the reality that this slave whose entire village was destroyed by the slave trade had enough not only courage and fortuitousness but also honestly forgiveness and grace to embrace the west even though yes it was british who rescued him still to devote his life to that cause is 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 amazing and thank you alex for bringing that to us my pleasure. Can you mind if I chip in one thing? Please do. I think well, two things. The first is, and it's important to the, the story I'm going to tell, is that he he got, went on to marry, uh, of course, um, Episcopalian and uh, uh, a Church of England priests are permitted to marry. He he married a woman who was also freed from slavery. Yes. And so I thought that was um, that was part of his story. But secondly, he um, translated the Bible into Yoruba. And he, he wrote some uh, Christian primers in both Igbo and Nupe. And that was part of his leadership, multilingual uh, leadership in his faith. And, and the, the thing I love most about that is that Queen Victoria, to whom he ministered, <laughs> he was invited to minister, recalled his recitation of the Lord's Prayer. I like to think it was in uh, Yoruba as being mellifluous. And there's yes. something wonderful about someone who went from being freed from slavery to reading the Lord's Prayer to the Queen Empress uh, that I thought was worth mentioning. Yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, for you remember sharing. all of this is still within <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> let's see, a patriarchy and, uh, for sure. <laughs> and British, well, look, we, we, British colonizing. But within that context, uh, this yeah. goes a long way towards, to, <laughs> towards being as you, positive. Uh, as, as you know, Terry, we're very unvarnished here. We, we, we will go after any of our countrymen or <laughs> any other countrymen when it is warranted, but occasionally it's nice to have a little bit of, uh, of sunshine in the otherwise horrific uh, stories <laughs> that we're telling. Now, I will say uh, modern day coda to this story. In 2015, the American Episcopal Church ordained Michael Bruce Curry as its first black presiding bishop. That would be like having an African uh, a black uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Alex. 
Well, we're, we're not that far off. We've had uh, for some time, and we had a black Archbishop of York. But yes, I I, I agree with that. Uh, I, that was your first. You, you didn't say it was your first bishop. It was your first Archbishop, right? So the the presiding bishop runs the entire. Presi- excuse me, presiding bishop. United States. Excuse so it was the first black presiding bishop. There have been numerous right. black bishops and gay bishops, which was part of the reason why we got tossed out. Right. So suspended, suspended. Yes, exactly. Uh, So I want to get any other thoughts, Alex and Terry, from you guys. But first, I just want to say that much like in the great Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, I think it's worth contemplating what the world might have looked like without Ajayi. First, as you write in your book, Alex, Ajayi's grandson, Herbert, was one of the fathers of Nigerian independence. And our next story shows us something else significant and positive albeit tragic, about his ripples down through Africa's history. But before we get to that, Alex, Terry, any other thoughts? Oh, you know, it's always the fun thing about history and is that you're always coming at it from the perspective of where we live today and all the points of view and the things that have changed in between. And so we have to, it's a great reminder to sort of put ourselves in the mind frame of people who are living at the time and think about how extraordinary these things are, even though we might look at it now with our hindsight of 2020 and say, right, you know, it still is, uh, you know, an oppressive situation or, or that kind of thing. But it's, I think these are stor- fascinating stories. It's uh, even, um, there's a story that says that the, the idea of creating race, uh, black versus white was from a Portuguese trader. Um, ah. There's a book out there that talks about that. So, you know, all of these connections to history and where we are today, I, I just love it. Sure. Well, I promised people we've got a lot of positive stories about Portugal as well, which we can, <laughs> Portugal rich in history and Britain's oldest ally, the oldest alliance in the world between wow. uh, Britain and, and Portugal. But um, I always reflect on the very different life that that gentle man of God that you've told us about, Brian, would have had, but for his freedom being restored by the Royal Navy when he was a boy. And for all that there are things in one's uh, past or in one's uh, culture that uh, cast uh, a shadow or, or about one, which one might feel shame, I think that's something one can feel proud about. One thousand percent leads me to is mathematic impossibility. You can only you can't have more than one hundred percent. I'm now going to uh, tell it's the next metaphor. Story, Brian. Yeah, I got the metaphor, but I, I'm the pedant in me wouldn't <laughs> let it go. Um, right, the heroine of my story, Ameo Adadevo, is the great 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 granddaughter of Ajahi Samuel Crowther, that, from the story that Brian just told, and she was a brilliant doctor. Uh, in modern day Nigeria and having studied of course in the United Kingdom uh, for her (laughs) medical qualifications (laughs) for some 20 years she was a leading practitioner in Nigeria and indeed Dr. Adadevo was the first to raise the alarm in her country when swine flu uh, was detected there in 2012 but moreover in 2014 Nigerian doctors went on strike Dr. Adadevo went on keep treating patients, thank goodness, because in her clinic arrived a patient who was a Liberian, also a naturalized American, by the way, called Patrick Sawyer. And he arrived at his clinic and claimed that he thought he had malaria. He didn't. Sawyer was, in fact, Nigeria's Ebola patient zero. Uh, and he was keen to get treated and to get on with his work. He was he was Liberia's uh, accredited attendee to go to a conference um, in Calabar in Nigeria of the Economic Community of West African States, um, ECOWAS. 
And so he was, he was, he was delegated. He'd worked for the Ministry of Finance in his country. He was an important guy. And he demanded that he was released from hospital to go. And uh, indeed, the, the good doctor received representations from her government, from his government, via, via her government, from his government, saying, let this guy go. Um, and she refused. Bear in mind, remember, this is in an environment that hadn't seen Ebola before. So she knew something was up with this patient. She didn't know precisely what it was. She didn't, you know, we didn't come with her with any guarantees. Question Alex. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you know anything about the position in the medical hierarchy at this point in, in Africa, in Nigeria, that a woman would have had? Were there any issues of her authority there? Uh, great question. And um, I think it's important to, to acknowledge and stress that she was one of the leading practitioners in her country at the mm -hmm. time. So which would imply that there wasn't a glass ceiling keeping her out from that. But you know, there may well have been some other issues which you're, which you're getting at. But she was certainly strong enough to overcome them, as you'll see in my story, because uh, many might consider you know, something, it's alarmist to get a patient that declares himself as having malaria, which is obviously a common condition that people treated, and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to let you go. Hmm. And indeed, as her many of her colleagues continued to strike, where this is in a doctor's strike in 2014, she insisted on isolating her patient. And she, lacking the relevant equipment for proper medical um, isolation at the time, she put up you know, wooden screens around it. You might call it a barricade around yes. the isolation area. Um, as she'd done with swine flu before, she was the first to raise the alarm over Ebola, and she was the first to make the push for the relevant protective equipment, and my God, don't we know more about that now we've lived through coronavirus, hmm. whilst giving first-class care to those in her charge. Um, but it was not, uh, Brian and Terry, it was not without cost, because in the course of caring for her patients, Dr. Adadevo herself contracted Ebola and died in August 2014 oh. in quarantine herself. And I think that the um, greatest tribute to her endeavours is one that she would have chosen. Her country was declared Ebola-free in the autumn of that year of 2014. But for her and for her actions, I think the spread of that most awful of diseases and the lives of many thousands of, of her fellow Nigerians would have been very different. So I like to think that her illustrious forebear, Samuel Crowther, that we heard about from Brian, would have been very proud of her. I am certain that that's the case. And it, it, it's tragic any way you look at it, Alex and Terry, but it's even more tragic when you think about the fact that she was one of the only people to die of Ebola during that time period. It's almost like the wow. poor folks at the end of a war who get killed after the war is already over and they just haven't after heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's a hell of a thing, huh? Yeah. And what a connection to have, you know, this person who came through and rose above all the uh, the terrible things. And you wonder what would have happened to all these other people had they not been had similar Absolutely. barriers where yeah. we would all yeah. be, yeah. you know, how many more yeah. Ebola? Jo join join the dots on good things that happen. Yeah. Had a man not been freed from slavery hundreds yes. of years beforehand, she would not have been there to save people from Ebola that day. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? Yes. And it's told frequently in fiction. There's Star Trek episodes about it. It's a wonderful <laughs> life I already mentioned, but I used to work as a pro bono general counsel to a anti-human trafficking organization. We'd have to deal a lot with people who were on the verge of suicide. And <clears throat> what a what a story to know, to tell someone that you can't begin to imagine the effect that you're going to have on history if you live 
and the negative effect you're going to have on history if you die. And there's no way to know. And it's not only self-destructive, but arguably selfish to, to remove from history that possibility. Right. So that's my story for uh, Black History Month. Terry, I'd love to hear yours. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it is about these interesting connections between past and present, because mine all comes from this story about how my great, 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 great grandfather was a white farmer in Florida, but he owned my great, 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 great grandmother, whom mm. he identified in his last will and testament as his, quote, mulatto slave Lucy, aged about 45. But the will went on to set her free along with their eight children and their six grandchildren. And they all had to make their way from Jacksonville, Florida to Illinois to claim their freedom in 1846. Um, but what really makes it kind of crazy is the way I discovered it is that I'm a trust and estates litigator. This is what I do for a living. I do will right. contests yeah. and family disputes. And I've been doing that for about 25 years when I found out that I have this whole history behind me. Uh, that led me down this entire path to try to understand the lives of these enslaved people who were my ancestors and, and what they had to go through to try to make their way to freedom. So, um, um, yeah. Terry, Terry, quick question. Did you, before you discovered the facts of the story you're about to tell, did your family have an awareness that your direct descendants of identifiable slaves or, or, or more just vague? Uh, you know, I think we generally knew, and, and I use the term enslaved people because I think we yeah. sort of lead with people, other people or enslaved yeah. persons. Uh, but we had, I'd gone to a family reunion back in 2001. And we, you know, we have black people have family reunions. There's a picture of one of my family reunions behind me now. I know the audience can see on the radio, but uh, <laughs> so I'd gone to one in 2001 and I'd seen this little excerpt from a will. And, you know, it was typed up in a cursive font. Uh, those of us who are old enough to remember cursive fonts. Yes, um, it was to try to replicate the idea that something was handwritten. And uh, it had mentioned this little bit of thing that just said, you know, in God's name, amen. And, uh, and then it went on to say, I, John Sutton, being of sound mind, but infirm in body, identify that I own the following property. Um, and he said, you know, I, I want to have these people removed to a free state, Ohio, Indiana or Illinois uh, or someplace where they can enjoy their freedom. And um, so this was typed up in this little excerpt from this reunion. And about 13 years later, I was going to a great aunt's uh, 100th birthday celebration. And she'd been the connection between us and this whole history. And I was trying to remember how I could come up with something that would commemorate her birthday and still remember this moment. And I found those old materials and I went calling lawyers all over the country to mm -hmm. see if I could try and track down a copy of the will. Um, so fortunately, I was able to talk to a couple of lawyers and one of them told me there was the great fire of Jacksonville in 1901 that destroyed all the records. So you're probably never gonna be able to find this will from 1846. That wasn't the one where the cow kicked over the lantern, was it? That's Chicago. That's the great <laughs> fire of Chicago, which is where I grew up. So I grew up with my own great fire, but the great fire of Jacksonville, um, which actually I think was in uh, 1901. And um, uh, it was a situation where, in fact, come, speaking of black history, uh, James Weldon Johnson, the guy who wrote the Lift Every Voice and Sing, known as the Black National Anthem, was from Jacksonville. He was a principal of a school and in honor of uh, Lincoln's birthday, and I'm digressing a little bit, um, he wrote uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. 
but mm -hmm. he described the, uh, the the Great Fire of Jacksonville as a situation where um, they could have saved much of the town, but they were focused on trying to protect a little set of row houses owned by one white guy, and all of North Jacksonville was going up in flames. Of course, visions of Cicero. Visions Nero, of Cicero. Sorry, visions of Nero. <laughs> but the but the bottom line is uh, somehow these documents managed to survive the Great Fire of Jacksonville of 1901 um, because they were meant to be seen by me, yes, and so we could share this story right. with all of you guys. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we found this, these original documents, it was handwritten by a lawyer, uh, with a red wax seal, uh, like you'd see in a, in a, you know, some kind of historical novel or something like that. And basically this, when we went looking for the file and actually saw it with our own eyes, we found the whole transcript from a trial. Wow. Uh, and it turns out that John's brother had tried to challenge the will to keep the family enslaved. Good so, so as I understand it, Terry, you've written or you're writing a novel about this, and I can imagine as an author, you thinking to yourself, this is an amazing story, but I need an evil villain. And all of a sudden he pops up. Exactly. It comes the, the evil uncle. Exactly. And, you know, it was before I even knew that there was an actual challenge to the will. I'd already had this moment where I was feeling like I was connecting to my ancestors. Uh, and uh, I knew that they were telling me there was more to this story and, and that's when I decided to make up this brother for John and I called him Eustace because it seemed like a good old timey name that I'd made up. And then we went to see the will itself six months later and we actually found out that there really was a brother and his name was Shadrach. That's so, amazing. Uh, that's amazing. And Shadrach, right. even a better evil villain for this story. Even better evil villain. Uh, so so he, tries to, he tries to keep the family enslaved, right. but, the, but the coup ruled against it. The court ruled against him and ultimately very big tick for the U.S. justice system. A, a, right? a big tick, at least for this one judge uh, whose, right. name, whose name was William F. Crabtree, uh, who <laughs> you uh, cannot make you, this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. And not only did he uphold the will, but he ordered that Shadrach had to pay twenty eight dollars and eight cents in costs. Uh, so, um, you know, it, and one of the things that was really interesting is the transcript from the trial uh, says that Lucy came into the room while the lawyer was preparing the document. And she said she would have been happy to stay there, but Shadrach had always threatened to beat them if he ever came to own them. Uh, and right. so uh, uh, the, her, her testimony was disregarded, but because we have the, the good fortune of being able to have these original documents, we're able to bring Lucy's words back to life. Well, on the one hand, go the rule of law. On the other hand, I imagine without knowing more than your fascinating story, which dear, dear listeners, the first time I've heard it, it's just, I think it's amazing. And it's available um, on Terry's podcast also. Exactly. Which well, I'm going to go and listen to after this. But the, the, what I was going to say was, on the one hand, go rule of law. On the other hand, I imagine the reason was upheld, the will was upheld, was nothing to do with human rights. It was to do with property rights. That is to say that your ancestor had the right to dispose of his, inverted commas, property, which was his slaves at the time, as he wished, right? So it's, well, it's one hell of a double-edged lesson. Although it's generally true that generally that, that, that's the big fight is between property rights uh, over people, uh, which we always have to keep in mind. But what's interesting is that uh, there were actually other will contests. And in some situations, it was determined that the document was valid, but the court would say, but the public policy of this state does not allow for the emancipation right. of peoples. Right. So we're not going to enforce those wills. And in fact, in Florida, where my family was, they would have had to pay a $200 fee, post a bond for each, the value of each of them, 
and they would have had to leave the state within 30 days. They were not allowing any more free people Go to live in homes. the state right, of Florida. Right. Well, Terry, Gosh. did you get any sense from the minimal record of Judge Crabtree's opinion that there was anything remotely abolitionist about it? Or was it, as Alex uh, speculates, purely property issues? You know, it's funny because we've seen a couple of other cases that involve this same judge, Judge Crabtree, who I think sort of did the right thing. It's an interesting place Jacksonville was. I think there was extremes there, like there are still extremes in Florida and perhaps in our polity today. But um, I think there were a few people who seemed like they were actually more in favor of humanity than uh, you know, were willing to put their, their humanity ahead of their racism. Um, I, mean, I have to think that about my ancestor, John, yeah. because they lived in Georgia. They moved 100 miles with 400 cows from Georgia to Florida, thinking that he could set them free there. There's something going on that made them want to move uh, and that made this man make this choice that he didn't have to make and then to do the will when he found out that it was illegal to set them free. So, um, uh, you know, there's, there has to be something that's more than the law that actually causes some people to stand up. And I think it's helpful for us to ask ourselves, what makes those people stand up? You know, and, and right. you well, know, that, why that... can't we get more people to stand yeah. up you know, today? Yeah, that circles right. me. That circles me back around Terry to a question I was going to ask you. So you mentioned that the Judge Crabtree disregarded that piece of evidence. However, as we all know, as re various degrees of recovering lawyers, that <laughs> you can say you disregard it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a powerful impact on your decision. And one wonders if that's not the case here. Hmm. I, I would hope so. You know, you would hope that the fact that she actually said these words to a lawyer who testified about him in court, even though she would have been prohibited from testifying herself, that those words must have meant something to this judge. And, and yeah. even as he struck them out and said, you know, but this, you know, her testimony as to this issue is to be disregarded. It's, it's powerful, like to, mm -hmm. to hold those papers that have this striking out but to now have the voice to be able to speak for Lucy and, and to say that, that she existed and that she had feelings and that she cared and, and that she wanted to see to it that her family was going to get free. That's so powerful to me that, that I'm, I'm right. You know. and, yeah. And one, one of the powerful things about this story and the way you tell it, Terry, and why we were so drawn to it is you take it down to the personal, and I hate to say, but in the context of the times, transactional level. So it's one thing, you know, you think about the slave trade, you think about the Holocaust, you think about these horrific, unimaginable things. And it's horrifying. But when you actually pull it down to the individual human stories, it's so much more powerful. And if I'm not mistaken, you've actually incorporated some of these lessons from your story into your own modern trust in the states practice. Uh, it's true. It's um, when you think about, as you say, the Mac the size of the slave trade. I was reading an article yesterday, I think in the New York Times about how historians can talk about, you know, all the ships that went and count the numbers and you tend to lose the humanity of all these yes. individuals that, you know, so many lost and millions lost at sea and, and you really do lose connection with the humanity of the individual. Mm. And so for me, um, trying to really connect with who they are and to tell their stories and then to come back and use that to, you know, fr from my standpoint, 
they did something special. Uh, and, so I tell right. people to and, do that today in their estate and, plan. And in your podcast, Terry, you tell some other stories also, right? Yes, um, because I found other people who were contemporaries of Lucy's who were around her at the same time, whom she might well have known. Uh, we can incorporate these other interesting stories about other fascinating women, the, the historical Mag Anna Magigini Jai Kingsley, who had been a, a formerly enslaved woman who uh, uh, was brought to the United States and she was, quote, married uh, in a relationship right. with, a, with her owner, but right. she had to fight in the court too. Right. Well, our, our listeners should go and listen to Terry's podcast as a result. Terry, remind us what your podcast yeah, is called. It's the Last Will of Lucy Sutton podcast. Uh, it's available on all, of the, on all of the Spotify and Anchor and every place else. That's, that's terrific. Fantastic. It's a great, compelling story. And I think, I think we can all agree that Alex and I are two of the whitest people you'd ever uh, <laughs> expect to meet anywhere. But it's... My natural colors are kind of pale blue. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but very moving. And I think the other thing that's te tremendous. teaches us, because we're always trying to find contemporary lessons in this, is it's a cliche now, but you know, think globally, act locally, whatever you're passionate about. And I know, Terry, you're passionate about bending the arc of justice. If you think hard enough, you will be able to find ways in your own lives that you can take small steps, not that freeing Lucy was a small step, but take small or large steps in your own lives that further the cause. It's great to go on the streets and protest. It's great to write op-eds. It's great to testify before Congress, but all of us can do things to make the world better in our own lives. Absolutely. I love that. To, to me, that's the, the whole thing. Terry, thank you again for being our special guest today. Terry is Fantastic. a well-known uh, litigator in trust and estates. He's nationally recognized. He's also uh, doing his best to bend the arc of justice through his art, through his activism, and through the way he conducts his life. And we're proud to call him a friend. Thank you, Terry. Thank you guys privilege, so much. Terry. We've been in Thank the arc you. of history towards justice. Love you. Yeah. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers.